Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm continuing with my series on the uh, late uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment in America and what its decline and fall means for us today. This is sort of a podcast commentary on an article I wrote in American Affairs magazine. I'll drop a link in the show notes again if you didn't catch the last episode called Rediscovering E. Digby Baltzell's Sociology of elites. First, I just want to say thanks to those of you who've continued to leave ratings and reviews. I'm honored. We're now up to 229 uh, reviews as of this reporting, which is great. Please keep them coming if you haven't had a review yet. I also want to encourage those of you who have not yet become financial supporters to consider becoming a regular monthly donor on Patreon or Gumroad. You can go to patreon.com slash masculinist or gumroad.com slash masculinist. Uh, And, you know, it's really important that I'm able to raise crowdfunding support in order to keep expanding what I'm doing and make it sustainable over time. Yes, I'm doing more traditional fundraising, uh, but having people like you demonstrate your willingness to set up helps me with that uh, as well. So thank you very much. And thanks to those of you who are already supporters. Today, normally when I do these podcasts, I actually make an outline, and sometimes I even almost write a script for them. But today, I don't even have a copy of the article in front of me. Uh, I'm just sort of uh, winging it. I'm going to do a little bit of a a free-form commentary here. I want to talk a little bit about, essentially, the story arc of the WASP establishment. Uh, But really, it's also a little bit of a lens on the story arc of America, maybe the framework of America. You know, one of the things that this really did, you know, when I was studying this, is it really helped give me a frame on which I was able to hang a lot of other things off of. I mean, you know, like like a lot of great books, Baltzell's Philadelphia Gentleman and Protestant Establishment and Puritan Boston and Quaker Philadelphia do a great job of telling the history of the United States, you know, through the lens of a particular aspect of it. And I think about that in terms of uh, similar to Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which is about secularization. But it's also, in essence, an intellectual history of the West a little bit, or maybe even a little bit of a general history of the West from 1500 on. Now, is it totally complete, et cetera? No. But it really does give you a sort of way of thinking about making sense of the world. And we all have to have these essentially scaffolds to help us make sense uh, out of of history. So we can think about dividing the world into sort of classical, medieval, and modern period in the West, for example. You know, there's nothing you know, objectively, uh, you know, uh, true about that, that didn't, those, those categories don't occur in nature, but they help us make sense of history. They help us make sense of history. And in the United States, I think we, we often like to think about, you know, sort of like pre-revolutionary America, then this sort of great change that happened around the revolution and the founding through to the constitution. Then we have essentially the, the pre-civil war, the antebellum era, then the Civil War, which was a major refounding of the country in a sense. Then there was this, essentially this period between the Civil War and World War II, 
representing sort of the, the build out of America uh, in the post you know post Civil War area. And then you can think of again the Depression, World War II as another major sort of refounding of America, and then in essence the post war uh, age that we've been in today. And I think it's interesting if you if you look at a, that uh, that revolution to Civil War period or that Civil War to World War II period. You see that, you know, there was, you know, 70 to 80 years between those things. And now we see that, you know, we're, you know, getting to be 70, 80 years after the end of World War II. And we've had these periodic institutional resets in America as crises and challenges have developed that the previous regime was really not able to to fully deal with. And so, you know, we... You know, we seem to be in a situation where a lot of our institutions are not doing so well today. And so maybe it'll be we'll come out of this on the other end with essentially another kind of reset, you know, another, in essence, refounding of the country uh, in a way that will give us, you know, maybe another 70, 80 years. So there's no guarantee. I'm not saying that's for sure going to happen. But I think it's interesting to think about it that way. And in the telling of the WASP establishment, it's really important to zero in on the Civil War as a key period, because prior to the Civil War, America was really very fragmented. And, you know, it was, you know, this was part of why we fought the Civil War it was around, are we a nation or are we a federation of states? And sort of in this pre-war era, every city, every state had its own upper class. So Boston had its upper class, Philadelphia had its upper class, you know, et cetera. And these local upper classes, it wasn't just, you know, these bigger cities, if you will, you know, many other, even at the smaller scale, it kind of replicated fractally on down. Uh, and again, these were, again, very local uh, upper classes. There was not an American upper class as such. You know, the the, the Massachusetts, uh, you know, elite, the upper class of Massachusetts is very different than the upper class of Virginia. Now, they certainly came together at the national level. Uh, certainly, Massachusetts and Virginia played a very outsized role in the country, but um, it was not like a single group of people with sort of shared, you know, traditions, cultures, uh, etc. It was a really a very fragmented culture, and you can get a sense of some of this fragmented culture uh, through some great uh, books that have been written, like Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher, which is a long book but a phenomenal book um, that kind of talks about. Uh, the four four of the founding cultures of America, four groups of settlers that came from different parts of England. So the Puritans in Boston, the Quakers in Philadelphia, the Cavaliers in Virginia, the Scots-Irish in the Appalachian regions, for example. And so there, there was this upper class, these upper class families, but they were, they were pretty local and it was pretty family-based. And the nature of how you became an upper class family was somewhat varied. You could have been a descendant of a, a prominent um, original settler, like say uh, John Winthrop in Massachusetts. You could have been someone who made a lot of money, uh, and then your your family became you know kind of prominent after that. You could have been someone who was a, a general in, in a Revolutionary War. You had military accomplishments. There was still this idea of you know a marshal. Um, upper class and still partially existed there. Uh, but ultimately, it was this collection of families who were, uh, you know, descended from various types of family founders and generations past. In the post-Civil War era, America really changed. America became a much more nationally 
uh, oriented country. So politically, we became a nation uh, in essence during World War II. But after, excuse me, after the Civil War, but also after the Civil War, we underwent a tremendous economic transition. One of whom's effects was to massively nationalize the country, and this happened with essentially large-scale industrialization. So there had been, you know, the Industrial Revolution uh, in America had actually started in the late 1700s. Uh, the first, uh, you know, textile mill in America was in the, in the late 1700s, and I think it was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Uh, but even up until around 1870, most businesses, even most manufacturing businesses, industrial businesses were pretty small. Maybe, you know, even 100 employees. They tended to be family firms, etc., but with the rise of the railroads, as these giant railroad countries, of course, they had a lot of railroads built in the war area, came along, what we see is the development of the modern, large American industrial corporation. And, you know, this 1870 to kind of 1910 era was the era in which mass large-scale industrialization took place, the creation of railroads, the creation of, say, the U.S. Steel Company, United States Steel, and the, and the, and the development of the steel industry, the development of the oil industry, and, uh, you know, John D. Rockefeller Standard Oil. So, of course, there were some monopolies, there were some trusts, there were a lot of other companies, but we saw the development of essentially large-scale national enterprises uh, as well as large-scale cities developed during this time. So we had, you know, nationalization politically, nationalization economically, and this nationalization tended to produce, you know, an effect of sort of nationalizing the upper class, uh, in a sense. So this is in the era when these sort of families that existed in different places started to become much more integrated as a national upper class. And so... The, the, in addition to the family, institutional markers of belonging to the upper class began to take on a much greater significance. And these included things like the Northeastern boarding schools. It included the elite uh, upper Ivies like Harvard, Princeton, Yale. People were much more, you know, people didn't necessarily go to the local college. If they went to college anymore, they started going to, to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. Uh, it was these clubs uh, in cities uh, you know, every city today has maybe one club left. Some of them have none left. You know, Chicago and New York have more clubs. But like here in Indianapolis, the Columbia Club on Monument Circle, one of these grand old clubs that have been founded as a Republican club in order to promote the presidency, the candidacy for president of Benjamin Harrison, who who then was elected. It was these clubs. It was the summer resorts. It was also country clubs. Forgot about that. Uh, these exclusive urban uh, neighborhoods or even suburban neighborhoods. And so, you, you know, your, your creation of these institutions then started to create more coherent bodies of uh, an upper class across America that inculcated certain values and certain shared experiences. So at schools like Groton in the Northeast, and a lot of these were founded, like this wasn't, a lot of these were not pre-existing. Harvard was pre-existing. Some of these colleges were pre-existing. But a lot of these new boarding schools, resort towns, city clubs, et cetera, they were new. They were new organizations People went to them, and they were sort of formed, uh, you know, when they were a schoolboy, uh, onward into college, into essentially 
you know, a certain set of, uh, you know, behaviors, norms, codes, etc. They got to know each other personally. And ultimately, these sort of, they, they intermarried across cities. And ultimately, these people became a, a national upper class. But they really did, to a great extent, continue to know each other quite a bit. Now, not that everybody knew everybody, but there was enough people who knew enough people who were interconnected that this was a genuine social community, right? And this is, the, I think, the club concept actually, you know, helps get at this, right? You had these clubs in these cities. So you would go to the Columbia Club, right? Or you would go to the Knickerbocker Club in New York, or you would go to, you know, the Chicago Club in Chicago, and you would hang out with your other buddies there, and a lot of business would get done there, right? And so relationships were formed and built in this manner. And and at this time, too, the creation of these industrial businesses uh, fueled an immense increase in stupendous plutocratic wealth. You know, there, there are very, very few millionaires in the United States uh, prior to the Civil War, for example. Well, now there's people with fortunes just they'd be billionaires today, right? just insane amounts of money uh, being created and uh, being created in these things. And so a lot of this new money was assimilated. A lot of this new money was assimilated into these older uh, kind of call them aristocratic upper class lines. And so I do think that's important to keep in mind that from an upper class perspective, it wasn't like a new upper class came into being after say 1870, but uh, what happened was, uh, you know, the old upper class sort of was morphed. It kind of took on a new character, uh, but it was it was sort of an organic development. And it was really this national upper class that became the basis of what you would call the establishment. And the glory days of the establishment lasted from probably around, you know, 1880, uh, you know, or so to maybe 1930. This was really a 40-year period when the WAFs really did dominate America, you know, in, you know, culturally, religiously, uh, economically, politically, in terms of the major institutions of society, etc. This was really the heyday of that establishment, which, frankly, wasn't that long. And why? Why did this establishment run into problems, say, around 1930? Why do I say 1930? Well, the Depression was one. And, you know, the failure uh, of the country to, to come to grips with the Depression sort of caused a lot of, of challenges for them. But there were a lot of other things going on. One was, of course, ethnic diversification in the country. And with this mass influx of immigrants from Europe to fuel the industrial economy, we ended up, you know, with a a large group of people who were a sort of different, uh, you know, ethno-religious origin. In particular, there were a ton of Catholics, you know, from places like Italy or Poland or Ireland or wherever, and there were also a lot of Jews that came to the United States. And, you know, basically this, this you know, so this really changed the, the ethnic character of America. There's this, this we're a nation of immigrants. Well, that's basically a, you know, a, a historical falsehood uh, to a great extent. You know, prior to this late 19th century, America, and this America was overwhelmingly British. I mean, overwhelmingly British. The black population was like 13%, so there was always 
a black population then, just as there was now. But, you know, it, it, think about even like the 50s, for example, prior to the current wave of immigration and how different the ethnicity of the country is. So America, for almost 300 years, certainly 250 years from its founding of these colonies up to the late 19th century, had been overwhelmingly British. And now the ethnic nature, uh, character of the country actually was changing. And the WASP ran into some problems because they were not able to assimilate members of this new population as they rose up kind of through the economic ranks of society. And this was very different from the the pre-war era. If there's one thing you know about the WASP establishment, it's probably that they were very anti-Semitic, which was true. But it's also important to to note that historically, anti-Semitism was not necessarily a big thing in the United States until around 1870 or 1880 or so. In the pre-war era, you know, wealthy, prominent Jewish people could be welcomed at the highest levels of society. So the most prestigious um, club in Philadelphia had Jewish members. And, you know, the Jew was actually an acting president for a while during the Civil War. And one of their oldest and most prestigious societies, the Dancing Assemblies, had been co-founded by two Jews. And especially in the South, in the Confederacy, there had been, uh, you know, uh, people like uh, uh, Judah Benjamin, who'd been a U.S. senator who was Jewish and had served as a cabinet officer in the Confederacy, later went off to, to England. So... Jews were much more assimilated in that period, but there actually there weren't that many Jews, just like there weren't that many you know of any other ethnicity. And so, with the smaller numbers, it was perceived as less threatening. In the post-war, uh, post-Civil War era, it became perceived as much, much more threatening. And so, it was at this point in time when there really started to be these ethnic, religious barriers that were put up. So, when the country clubs, uh, the, the country clubs came along, and the resort towns came along, Jews were excluded. You couldn't join. And this meant that even previously assimilated Jews, their own children might find themselves, you know, essentially blackballed from these clubs. And a lot of the businesses, you know, the Jews were also excluded from a number of businesses like, you know, elite law, etc. So there were sort of these barriers that came along, started to affect these populations that were coming. And because the ethnicity was the country was changing, this was a big problem this was a big problem for the WASP. That was one. A second problem is when you go to a large industrial corporation, the forms of ownership and management changed a lot. So again, in the late 19th century, a lot of these companies were essentially, which you might think of similar to Silicon Valley today, they were entrepreneur-led, founder-controlled. The founder got very, very, very rich and sort of ran, ran the company. But as companies get big... Uh, a couple things starts happening. One, they shift to a you know publicly traded corporation format, and there tends to be a separation of ownership and control, and that now there's a professional CEO running the company, not the founder anymore. And so the the corporations became much more run by very large bureaucracies, of which there are too many elites in sort of a bureaucratic society to operate on the way these sort of old social networks at the club. There are just too many like senior corporate executives as opposed to like, you know, all powerful John D. Rockefeller senior type people. So that caused a big problem that caused a big problem for them. And then once once we got all these major corporations established, you know, by the 20s, it became much harder to create more, you know, create new fortunes. 
it was harder to create, you know, and, and say about, think about 1950, for example, to, to entrepreneurially start a company in the 50s and become a billionaire, that was just very, very, very hard to do. Uh, I can't even name someone who did it. So essentially after this kind of gold rush period, it, we entered this this kind of drought for new entrepreneurial fortunes. And that was, of course, also multiplied, that the barriers multiplied as a result of the passage of the income tax and, you know, the estate tax and things like that. So these issues started to bear down on the WASP elite in that it essentially, you know, they're switched to this bureaucratic managerial state, if you will, with big government, big corporations, big cities requiring a very bureaucratic mode of governance, less being run by like one man at the top. And then you had essentially all this ethnic exclusion uh, which created moral dilemmas for them. And then there was essentially the the challenges of the Depression uh, when, you know, WASP leadership was no longer looking so hot um, in America. And, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, in essence, the WASPs were sort of bailed out for a while by World War II because when World War II came along, um, first off, all of the WASPs, you know, a fighting age served. Um, I just uh, just got done writing a review of a book about Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. He was a U.S. senator during World War II, and he actually resigned his Senate seat to go fight in World War II. I mean, nobody would do that today. So they served, and you know the older generation was leading the country, FDR, and they were very successful in winning World War II. And then coming into the post-war era with renewed prosperity, that bought them time. But what Baltzell really saw uh, that threatened them what really threatened them was in the you know in the post especially in this post-war era as these Ellis Island era immigrants were now entering the middle class becoming professionally successful etc was these ethnic barriers and the fact that many many more of these old wasp uh, people were not actually taking up leadership uh, positions in society anymore they were kind of just sitting back going to their clubs hanging out uh, kind of living the high life you know in the society pages but they weren't really serving their country. Now, some like, you know, Henry Cavett Lodge did. And uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, this, this fact that they were essentially keeping all their privileges, kind of keeping their money, but not really providing, you know, a, re- you know, a, a return on that for society, uh, it, you know, increasingly caused a lot of problems. And so this really put a lot of pressure on them. And then Vietnam uh, was really sort of a, a waterloo uh, for a lot of them, Um you know, uh, Lodge, I mentioned Lodge, he was the U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam when Diem was overthrown, uh, but George Bundy was the national security advisor at Ginder Kennedy and Johnson, and a lot of these WAFs sort of didn't do so well in Vietnam. Now, I think it's important to recognize, right, Kennedy, who stuck, got us into that mess, was a Catholic, and uh, Johnson, again, a WASP was an upper-class origin Protestant, uh, Lyndon Johnson was not a WASP. He came from kind of a lower status background, essentially as did Richard Nixon. So the top leadership in the in the debacle there uh, really was, um, you know, really was, uh, uh, you know, not not WASP. But nevertheless, though, the WASP were kind of like you know came away tarnished by that. And then really with the '60s, things sort of collapsed. The old establishment, uh, in, in essence, uh, collapsed. And so you basically, you essentially had this flowering of a group, uh, kind of this national upper class during this period of American transformation, nationalization of the economy and the country, mass industrialization, 
uh, going through to the war and then coming into the post-war era, started going into decay. And then we had these radical upheavals of the 60s that caused a lot of that, you know, that caused them to essentially, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a catastrophic collapse per se, but ultimately what remained of the establishment, you know, kind of crumbled away uh, by the end of the 60s. And so I would I would talk more about, you know, what happened um, and, and what the implications of the loss of establishment are. But I'm at 23N, and I think this is kind of more maybe a history one, not as exciting. The next time I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about, okay, you know, what happened to the gentleman's code? What happened to norms? And just talk through some of the implications and what that implies about what we need to have as our solution for America today. And again, the hint, the answer is not more populism. So thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.